All right, hockey fans, listen up because we've got something special cooked up for playoff season. It's called the Daily Faceoff Playoff Parlay Challenge, and it's going to add some serious spice to your playoff experience. Now, here's the deal every playoff game, you're going to be faced with a handful of questions. It's like your own personal playoff puzzle, and it's free to join. And there are prizes because who doesn't love winning stuff? Daily winners, you're getting hooked up with gift cards. Treat yourself to some nation gear or maybe even your favorite jersey. And for the big dogs, the people who can win an entire round, it's straight, cold, hard cash. We're talking about real dough for your hockey knowledge. So lace up those skates, stretch those thumbs, and get ready to show off your hockey IQ in the daily face-off playoff parlay challenge. Sign up today and play every game day at games.dailyfaceoff.com and prove your puck prowess. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to the DFO Rundown Podcast with Frank Saravalli and Jason Greger on dailyfaceoff.com. Delivered by DoorDash. Welcome to episode 105 of the DFO Rundown. I'm Jason Greger. Welcoming Frank Saravalli, who's uh, representing the PH, uh, what is that? PWHAPA? I kind of, there's a letter. PWHPA, yep. Oh, professional, professional hockey women's huh? hockey oh, players okay. association there we go well hey uh frank you're doing all right our apologies from canada after uh, another big win for the canadians over the americans but uh, what a thriller coming right down to the wire canada us the the women's for the gold medal uh, as everybody expected i was gonna say that is actually the least thrilling gold medal game which kind of says something because all the other ones have been so ridiculous but canada was just in control of that gold medal game really from the start the u.s it felt like the U S was never really even threatening. Like even when they got that goal late, the goalie, uh, Debian didn't have her stick. It was like, eh, 12 seconds left. There's no chance. Like it was never really in question. No, that's fair. Uh, that's definitely fair. It was, uh, you know, I think the U S looks when they missed the open net two minutes into the game, if, if that, that could have t- changed the whole game where they hit the goal post goalie didn't make the save. And you're like, man, if she buries that, uh, we'll see where it goes. Uh, here we are getting down to uh, near the end of February. We're just about 30, what is it, 31 days away from uh, NHL trade deadline. So uh, some of the names that are out there. Uh, who, who do you got, Frank? Who, who's rumbling in, the, uh, in, in Frank's top trade possibilities? Yeah, so just posted our trade targets list on dailyfaceoff.com on Thursday. And 
really seemed to cause some buzz in Vancouver. Not that that's hard to do. I feel like that market, you can just sort of wind them up a bit and set them off. Um, but Brock Besser is a name that really um, has popped up on the trade front. A number of teams in conversation with the Vancouver Canucks about Brock Besser. Um, he's number six on our board. And, you know, I really think that when the Canucks and you look at where they're at with their salary cap, you read between the lines of what Jim Rutherford is saying about trying to clear space. Brock Besser's do a significant qualifying offer. And yes, he's played really well under Bruce Boudreaux. No one has really benefited quite as much from the coaching change as Brock Besser has, which says something considering Boudreaux came in and you remember that first press conference, that first day it was like, you know, that was his first target, his first guy to get engaged. And he approached him at morning skate on the ice and said, Hey, we're going to get you going. And, and they have Brock Besser, 10 goals now since Bruce Boudreaux took over and he's been good, but he's also due a significant qualifying offer. And I think part of the question from the Canucks is when Brock Besser isn't scoring, what's he mean to your team? And why would we trade a player like JT Miller, who's a driver for us? and is a point per game guy and does a lot of different things when JT Miller is at five and a quarter million dollars for next year. And Brock Besser's qualifying offer is at seven and a half. That makes sense. I've never understood all the rumblings about trading JT Miller. I'm like, why? Like JT Miller is one of your best players. So teams that have inquired about JT Miller, um, the New York Rangers being one of them I've mentioned before, JT Miller is priority A number one for New York. That's the guy on their list. That's who they want. Those teams are beginning to now look at plan B and plan C on their list because I think they've gotten a sense that either Vancouver doesn't know what they want to do with JT Miller or they're non-committal in terms of moving him. And so they're beginning to look in some other directions, which would give you an indication that it's probably more unlikely than likely that Miller's on the move. Was there, as you look at your trade target list, Frank, you mentioned Brock Besser gets a lot of hype. Who do you, from all your contacts, who's, who's getting talked about more now that, you know, that you're like, Hey, th these guys are obviously going. And is there anybody whose trade value you think has gone up? Hmm. Well, Claude Giroux is being talked about a lot for sure. He's number one on our board. And he's the guy that I think, you know, at this point, everyone is sort of resigned to the fact that, He's moving on. Um, I think the Flyers are. I think Claude Giroux is. And now they're working with his agent and Pat Brisson to find a new home as he has the full no move clause. Um, we talked and spent a long time on Monday's pod, episode 104, about Brandon Hagel. So we know why there's interest there. Um, I'm still, the goalie front is really interesting. Like, what happens, you know, Vegas has the injury to Robin Leonard. I mentioned the connection to Marc-Andre Fleury this week. Uh, Alexander Georgiev's name has been out there. I don't know that there's anyone that I can think of on my list that their name has really rocketed up in terms of um, their trade value going up. But I think there's been a lot of, like, I feel like the market has... I don't know if flooded is the right word, but there's a lot of names that are being talked about at one time. 
The interesting one when I was going through your list, Frank, you know, Ben Sherratt, you had him at number two. And then, you know, there's there's Jacob Chikrin, John Klingberg, Jeff Petrie, you know, Nick, Mark Giordano, lots of defensemen early in the top 10. And as we all know, teams love defensemen. Um, you had Ricard Raquel on the list, but, uh, oh, but not Tyler's guy. Ricard yeah. Raquel. Oh, he loves him. But um not Josh Manson, who was injured last night. And I'm talking to guys in Anaheim. They all think for sure the Ducks aren't re-signing him. So where do you come out on Manson? Um, that That's not the intel that I have. Um, okay. I think Manson, look, there's a lot to figure out under Patrick Beek, and he's still getting his feet wet. He's only about 10 days into on the job, and I think he's been working the phones like a madman to try and – not just evaluate his team, but also to understand the marketplace, to understand what it would cost to re-sign these guys. I'd be very surprised if Ricard Raquel is re-signed. Yeah. Um, I think Hampus Lindholm has a real chance um, to go. And I think, you know, just based on early Intel that I've gotten, it, it seems that Josh Manson might be willing to stay for, I don't want to say a hometown discount, but, He's, I think he's really interested in staying. And so you mentioned you think Lindholm's going to go? It's possible. I mean, look, there, there's a lot of work that needs to be done. I, I personally, I think that the Ducks keep both their defensemen and trade Ricard Raquel. And part of it is like, it's so difficult to replace those guys that do so much for that team. Like 100%. you're not finding those guys in free agency and you don't have any of them in your pipeline that you've drafted that are ready to step in. So where, how, how's your team going to be better next year? Yeah. I, hey, I watched the Ducks, man. You look at them. They're getting outshot by over eight shots a game here the last two and a half months. Manson's That's out. nothing new, though. Yeah. That's, that's Ducks of old. That's Ducks of the last few years. Yeah. They, they need better defense. And so you get rid of those two. I think, you know, you're basically, you're almost telling John Gibson we're in a full rebuild if that happens. And then I'd want. Hey, I'm glad you mentioned John Gibson, actually, because I think it's incredibly important um, heading into the offseason and down the stretch after the trade deadline that you make sure that you let some of your vets like Gibson know that you're serious about competing because that guy's a competitor. He works his arse off and he's someone that I think needs the buy-in from the team around him in order to get the most out of him. I think if you signal that you're going in another direction or the rebuild is continuing, that that could be really interesting for John Gibson. We got uh, Jason Strudwick coming up. Some great stories. Uh, you know, he played with a lot of Hall of Famers. Uh, he's a Hall of Fame chirper. But before then, we'll get to uh, buy or sell with Tyler Ramchuk. Ty, how you doing? I am doing fantastic. I'm coming down off the high of watching Ricard Raquel in person last night, which is oh. huge. I don't even know where that started. I don't know how he became my guy. Um, but it's something that the Oilers Nation people run with. So I just kind of bought it. Uh, let's get into buy or sell brought to you by our friends over at DoorDash. Promo code Rundown DD gets you 25% off and no delivery fees on your first order. I forgot to hit the doorbell. So that is totally on me as I now scramble to find the button. There we go. Uh, first question we got for you. Ben Sherratt. There were some rumors that, you know, when the Flames got to Foley, maybe they liked Sherratt. There's some rumors that the Leafs like Sherratt. Buy or sell on Ben Sherratt staying in Canada, Frank? Sell. I mean, I I think there's only two teams that would be interested. I think there's more in the U.S. I'm going to just play the odds. I think Calgary's out now. I don't think they can afford the acquisition cost. And I don't think he's 
that I don't think he's number one or two or three on Toronto's list. Yeah, I, I'm going to say uh, bye for sure. I think uh, he is going uh, to the East. Um, I'm sorry, to the United States. And uh, you know what? There, there's a f- the uh, the Boston Bruins and the Washington Capitals are two teams. I, I'm not going off of any intel. I'm just looking at what they need, and I think those are two teams that could be heavily after him. Number two, Frank. There was an interesting conversation earlier this week on the Daily Faceoff show, centered around the Winnipeg Jets. Some pieces that could or couldn't move now, summer draft, whatever. Buy or sell on Mark Shifley being a Winnipeg Jet at this time next year. Jason? Ooh. Man, Blake, you trade Shifley? Unless he asks for a trade, why would you do it? So I'm going to, uh, I'm going to sell. That would, uh, I, I don't think that helps you, the organization. I think that means you're, you're buying. You're saying he will be a Jet. Yeah, you're buying on buy. Shifley yeah, being yeah, a buy. Jet. Yeah. yeah mm-hmm. okay. I'm going to sell. There are lots of rumblings about this being Mark Shifley's last season in Winnipeg. I think it's probably premature, although not guaranteed that he's a deadline conversation. And I think this summer they have like, they have to do something too. Like, and I know that that's not in their MO. Um, They've built and spent a lot of money on this core. They've had a lot of success. This is a down year. But I just, there's rumblings in a sense that, you know, that situation is coming to a head. What that means, don't know. Um, I've asked questions and the response I got was Kevin Sheveldayoff has spent so much time trying to get Shifley and Pierre-Luc Dubois that now that he has them, he, he's not giving up on them that quickly, but this is a rough year for Winnipeg and they, it feels like they might be close to turning the corner. And it's every time that they've had that sense this year, it's gone the other way kind of quickly. So we'll see if they can make a run. All right. Last one, before we get to our points bet bonus question, I saw in an interview with the athletic Pierre Dorian says he hopes this is his last trade deadline as a seller. Do you buy or sell that from Pierre Dorian, Frank? Well, I buy that he hopes it for sure, but I think he was hoping to not be, I I think he was buying that that wouldn't be the case last year though. I think that they thought they'd be way more competitive, especially the way last year ended in the North that, you know, they played well over 500 hockey the last half of that shortened season. They were actually a pretty good team to have the struggles that they did this year. I think surprised them and a lot of people Uh, there's Still kind of far from, not kind of, they are far from the playoffs. So they've got a lot of work to do. And what was interesting about Pierre Dorian's comments a couple of weeks ago, I believe to Bruce Garriock was we're trying to mostly get set for next year's team at this year's deadline, meaning they don't want to be making a ton of acquisitions and bringing in new people. They felt the lack of continuity really hurt them to start this year. So um I I think they want that to be the case. I just don't know that that will be the case because that's a lot of points to make up. Yeah. Well, it's basically nine wins right now. They're behind uh, Boston. So that's, a, and that's in, we're only in 50 games, but so I'm going to sell and I, I'm going to preface it by saying, I'll be able to tell if, if they're there or not, if they trade Nick Paul, if they trade Nick Paul, now they just, they've just created another big hole in their, in their organization and uh, how they're going to how they're going to fill that. So that that to me is I think we'll know a lot about Dorian 
on uh, whether or not they keep Paul. Fair enough. Last Nick one. Paul is number 11 on our yep. daily face-off trade targets list, by the way. Last one I got for you, points bet bonus question. I'll be honest, I was hoping that the semifinal game between Russia and Sweden would be over so I could have the odds for the gold medal game, but it's either going to be Finland against either Russia or Sweden. They're tied 1-1 in the third as we're recording this. Of course, the game's not over yet. Uh, who's your pick for gold medal at the Olympic on the men's side, Jason? Well, I said uh, look out for Finland. The Finns always show up in these tournaments, man. It's unbelievable. So uh, I will go for the... I know this is their first ever time at the Olympic gold medal, but... There's been no country that punches above their weight consistently at these tournaments. I'm taking the Finns. It'd be awesome to get a rivalry gold medal game, Sweden, Finland. Um, I don't know. If that happens, I'll take Sweden. There you go. That's going to do it for another edition of Buy or Sell, brought to you by our friends over at DoorDash. You guys love the doorbell. Awesome. Uh, Frankie, let's get into it. Uh, longtime uh, NHLer, uh, now uh, analyst, uh, Jason Stradwick will join us. Now we are joined on the DFO rundown, a gentleman who played 674 National Hockey League games over 13 seasons with the Canucks, Rangers, Blackhawks, Islanders, and the Edmonton Oilers. He also dabbled his skills in uh, two different stints in Europe. He's a two-time Memorial Cup champion and also the runner-up in Battle of the Blades, former NHL defenseman. Jason Strudwick joins us. Struddy, welcome to the rundown. Yeah, pretty impressive resume, hey guys? Pretty impressive. <laughs> I was, I was going to say, Jason didn't mention perhaps the worst part of your resume, which would be co-hosting his afternoon show on TSN. <laughs> That's the price I paid for the 13 years in the NHL. <laughs> you've never been more popular than you were now when you played so you know what's funny grace you know you, we joke about that but in a lot of ways it's true as a player you're you're pretty limited in, in your um especially then without social media we were pretty limited on on the personality you could show it was just maybe a few few interactions with the media maybe a few events you went to but you know once you get on the media people really start to see your personality and they get to know what makes you tick and you're right. I think people know me way better now than they did when I was a player. And they, they saw me play, you know, almost every other night. So now uh, one of your former teammates uh, just turned 50. He's older than you and he's still playing. So first of all, <laughs> what do you have to say about yourself that you, you can't even play men's league and, and Yarmer Jagger is still lighting it up in the Czech league. It's crazy. You know, I remember when I first, I was first uh, joined with the Rangers. I was told by so many people that this guy was an asshole and, you know, you, you weren't going to like him. So I kind of went in there with that idea. I always like to give people a chance, but you get there and, you know, I, first couple interactions, then were amazing. And then you see how hard he works. And, um, you know, he, he didn't work in the traditional sense. If we had a practice, he didn't work that hard in the practice. If we got to the gym for a team workout, Yags wasn't really doing it, but he would do it on his time. So he'd go to the rink before practice or way later after practice and do his own thing. Same with the workouts. Um, and he put his time in. He used to invest to do it underneath the team umbrella. He still is doing it. So I, I check on his stats every now and then. And, um, you know, we playing at 50. I, I can barely, you know, race against a 10-year-old right now. So I don't know how he's doing it. But good for him. I don't know where it stops. Maybe 50 is the end. But I don't know. It's impressive. Now, you talk about highlights of your career. What about, was, wasn't Jagger your stick boy, in essence, for a while with the Rangers? Yeah, probably a high point in his career. You know, and he, what happened was we started playing together. And he, he would always tell me that my stick wasn't right. And, um, or it was, it was not right, but just a bad stick. And I was like, I, it doesn't matter. Like it's a hammer. That's really the way I looked at it. 
And um, so he started looking at it and he said, I'm going to go fix your stick. So he went into the back and found a stick that was similar um, as far as lie and stuff like that. And he made it up. He, he, he got it to the same curve as mine. And he said, here, use this for practice. So all the guys are howling. And I'm like, how much difference can it be? And literally within seconds of being on the ice, it was crazy how much better it was. And um, I, I couldn't believe it. So, you know, it takes a while to submit your pattern, your new pattern to the new guy, the new people. It takes about two weeks. So all that time, he continued to make sticks for me and uh, whatever my stick would break. And uh, when my stick finally arrived with my pattern and whatever it was, a couple dozen, he just said, okay, I'm done fixing you. I'll move on to the next guy. And that's what Yags did. Like he went around, you know, that year he worked with Michael Rosewald's one-timers, uh, Dubinsky on his face sauce, Michael Nylander and actually passing the puck instead of holding on to it all the time. Like all, all these types of guys, he just, he just went around the room fixing guys. And I, I really appreciate that about him. Um, you know, a star that was willing to spend time with you to make you even incrementally better makes the team better. So we had a really nerdy stick conversation with Adam Oates a couple of weeks back. And it was like 20 of the most fascinating minutes that we've had on this pod. <laughs> what changes did Yags make to your stick that, and what did you notice right away? Yeah, well, I should go back to my original stick I got um, is when I played with the, uh, the Canucks and um, Mark Crawford didn't like my stick. So he had also told me, we want I want you to change your stick. And I was like, yeah, whatever. Like, you know, I, I, I wasn't the guy who spent a lot of time on it. So finally one practice, he was mad and uh, he just takes my sticks and throws it into the stands and goes over and takes Todd Bersuzzi's stick and says, you're using this from now on or you're not playing. So it was a pretty easy decision. So I started using Todd Bertuzzi's stick. So a guy that was a goal scorer, um, you know, and I, then I was like a, a chopping wood defenseman. So maybe not the best marriage of stick and player, but anyways, um, when Yags got it, uh, a couple of things he did for sure was it became more, it was more flex. There was more flex in it. I was at like a high one fifteen or higher and he got it down to about a one Oh five. So, you know, it doesn't sound like a lot, but now I pick up my one ten. I can't even bend it. So it gives you a little bit more ability to, to move it. But then also you just made the blade a little bit straighter and not quite such a big curve on it. And it was way easier to handle it. Then overall, the stick was lighter. So those three things, it all made a big difference. And it's crazy. Like I, you know, I'm not a huge stick guy. I think that, you know, if you handle the puck more, it's better. I, I use the sticks they have now. They're so much easier to handle. Um, you know, maybe I could have had a better, a better blade, you know, that would have helped me better. But I think at the end of the day, you're limited a little bit by your hands. It's not always a stick. So do you have any funny off the ice Yager stories? Like I spent one year around him and got to know him pretty well. And his sense of humor is outrageously funny. Yeah, I know. He is a really funny guy. I, I you know, he, he was, um, like I said, he always did things on his timetable. Right. So like if practice started at like, uh, like 11, the Yags would get out like 10, 59, 59. And we skate out and he'd say to Tom, how long is practice? And Tom would say it's 28 minutes. So we'd be practicing and like Yags would yell out 13 minutes left and he'd keep going like two minutes left in practice. Then as soon as it would get to 28, Yags done, Tommy, and he'd call him Tommy, Tommy, we're done. And he'd skate off the ice and that was Yags. But the weirdest part was we'd all stay out and practice and do some stuff. And then we'd all go off and we'd come back out. Yags, he'd come back out and he'd work on his one timers or his passing. Like he was the, it was so, he just did his things on his own time and, you know, even earlier on in training camp, he and I are getting to know each other. Ben, he comes up to me one day. He's like, hey, do you think you want to come back and practice with me tonight at the Rangers facility? I'm like, oh, my God, of course. I couldn't believe it. Like, Yarmory Iger's asking me to practice with him. 
So I have to go pick him up. I had a, I had a deal with a car guy, a used car lot. And uh, basically I could, I'd give him tickets once a month and they just give me whatever car wasn't for sale. So at this time I had like a Ford Focus, I think it was, and uh, it was free. So what am I going to say? So I go, I had to go, I'm on the West side. I go drive over, pick up the eggs in the, in the, the Ford Focus. So he and I are driving out to, uh, <laughs> to this nice, beautiful practice rink. And we get out there and um, he, so he, it's just he and I, and we put some music on and he's like, okay, hey, I'm going to stand here. You pass me pucks. So I just start passing, 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 you know, after like 10, 15 minutes, I'm like, Hey, when am I going to get shoots? Like, no, no, I, you passed today. I shoot. I'm like, all right. So I just keep passing the pucks and he probably shot a thousand or 1500 pucks that day. I maybe shot five, but my passing got better. And then um, got back in the Ford Focus, drove back to the city. And that was it. That was our, our, our day together. But uh, that's what he was like. Like he just, you know, he, he, what, he just did things on his own way and, and not right or wrong, just his own way. And so he never commented on the Ford Focus? Oh, yeah. The guys are giving me a hard time. And like over that year, while well, I was there for a couple of years, I'd always have this guy. And it was a great deal. Like I didn't want to drive my car from Edmonton all the way to New York. So and there, there was one time, I'll never forget it. I pulled up to the Rangers parking lot and it was secured, you know, at, at uh, this practice ring. And I didn't have my pass, so I couldn't pass it, like tap in. So the guy's like, uh, yes, can I help you? I'm like, yeah, it's uh, Jason Strubick. I'm here to, for, for practice. He's like, I'm sorry, what are you here for? I'm like, I play for the Rangers. He's like, no, you don't. I'm like, I do. This is my car. This is what I do. The guy's like, no. I'm like, oh, can you call uh, John Rosasco? He, he actually knows me. And so he had to call the, the Rangers PR guy to let him know that I was actually on the player. So the guys just gave it to me. Like I'm on the team. Seriously. I had like these phantoms, all these amazing Mercedes. And then I got have, I had like a Jeep Cherokee one time, but like base edition, it was always the cheapest thing. And then the guy would call me. He's like, Hey, someone wants to buy your car. Can you switch? So I just drive on the way by, give them my car, grab a new car. And out the door I went. Now you played for the Rangers, I think for, uh, for three seasons. And, you know, you're playing at MSG. It's one of the most historic arenas. Did the Rangers and the Knicks, like, did you guys interact a lot? You know, we shared a practice facility, right? And we shared our, our, at that time, the dress rooms were linked by a, um, like the training room. And it wasn't very nice. It was pretty, I mean, as far as NHL standards go, it wasn't very nice. But our practice rink was crazy. And we'd always, we, we, they'd have, they'd have a basketball court and we had the hockey rink. It's practice facility. But we'd always share a common cafeteria. Now, this was quite a few years ago before a lot of teams had the cafeteria idea. So we'd go in there and we'd share it. And some of the basketball players were amazing guys. But just like in every walk of life, there's some that were not that good. And I remember Stefan Marbury. He was a pretty good basketball player, difficult player to manage, I think, at times. But he would, there'd be a lineup, let's say five or six people deep, well, people, staff or players or coaches or whatever. And he would just walk to the front like every day. And I'd be like, Hey, Hey, what are you doing, man? And he's like, well, what do you mean? What do you mean? Like the back of the lines over there. And he would just, he'd get so mad all the time, but I'm like, I'm not taking this guy's shit. So he was a big guy, but I mean, I was decent size too. And it, it, and about two or three times he and I had not have it out, but I'm like, fuck, get in the back of the line, man. And so he'd get in the back of the line. Then he started coming at different times, but like, it was just, it was so yeah, but some of them were like a Malik Rose, amazing guy. Like some of the coaches were good guys. Even Isaiah Thomas was a nice guy, but Stefan Marbury was a hard guy to love. My God, he was sometimes he'd walk through the kitchen sweaty to get his food on the other side. And I'm like, it's just gross, man. Like we don't, we don't need you sweating. I'm not walking here all sweaty, you know, like it's just gross. But anyways, I don't think he ever really found his home. 
So there's Stefan Marbury. When you were with the Rangers, you also played with one of the biggest characters in Sean Avery. And, um, you know, Avery, when he played, uh, Milan Lucic told me how when he played with Brad Marchand, some days he'd kind of be sleepy in the game and then Marchand would do something or say something and magically he's in the game, right? Was Avery the same way? Like, was there certain games where it's like a middle of November, non-divisional game or December and you're kind of like going through the paces? And then Avery does something and then the whole team suddenly in the game was, did he not only ignite the other team's frustration, but possibly your guys too? Well, first off, I've never seen a player get team players off their, off their game more than Sean Avery. He was elite, elite, elite. And the New Jersey Devils were target number one. I think it all started because he called Marty Brodeur fatso. He's like, I'm going to get fatso today, guys. You're like, oh my God. And so he'd go in there. Is that all he said to him? Well, no, he said a lot, but that, I mean, I don't think anyone gets like getting called that, especially a professional athlete. And he would attack him and he would be all over. And I, I remember a couple of games where it was the easiest game to play because their whole team was focused on killing Sean Avery. And he, like they weren't forechecking, they weren't doing anything. And I, after the game, we'd just be like, thanks, Aves. Like, that was really nice to you. It just made my night really easy. But he he was a character. Like, I forget why, but he had to go visit Gary Bevan. He did something. I don't know if he speared someone or whatever. Um, so he decided he was going to wear a tuxedo and it was, but it was like a funky tuxedo. And so he shows up to practice in this outfit that he's going to wear to see Gary Bevan. And like, we're all dying. Um, and it was like, an, it was a weird time. It was like a Chippendales tuxedo, right? Like, I think there was short sleeve and a, a bow tie. Like it was crazy, but you know, the guy, he, uh, as far as the teammates go, you know, a lot of people didn't like, him. I, 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 you know, we had a run in, but honestly, he, he just, he just did his thing. And that team was full of guys like that. Like, you know, Kasparitis and uh, Yager and, and, and Marty Straka, like all, Sean Avery, they all kind of did their own thing, but it all fit. And uh, well, Brent Shanahan was there, but he helped kind of, he was kind of the conductor that kind of kept everybody at least somewhat on the same page. Scott Gomez, he'd always call himself the artist. You can't handcuff an artist. He'd always say to the coach, like he turned over the, the blue line. He'd be like, Coach, you can't handcuff an artist. <laughs> like, just get the puck deep, man. Like, we don't, we don't need to hear about this. So, but Sean Avery, he was amazing. Like the guy, he he. I've never seen anyone turn a game over like that with with being irritating. Did he ever fire he, you up? Did you ever want to kill him? Oh yeah, there was one time we uh, we had I hadn't played for probably seven games, and I always, I was pretty calm. I knew my role. I understood how it had to be. And um, but still, you're proud. You know, you don't want to get your ass uh, not playing. So we're doing some drill and I'm, I'm grumpy this day and, and Abe said something to me. So I remember it was a one-on-one drill and I was supposed to go down the other end, but instead I chase Avery down the ice and I'm, I'm like, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill you. Now everyone knows what's going on. Tom Rennie's yelling for me to stop and Aves goes right back to line and he stands behind Brennan Shannon. I just look at Shannon. I said, Shannon, or he goes, Shannon goes, this isn't happening. I said, Shannon, get out of the way. I'm going to beat you up. Then I'll beat him up. And he's like, no problem. And he just got out of the way. And then at that point, everyone jumped in and it was over. But it bothered me that I let Avery get to me. Even to this day, it still bothers because afterwards, Avery and I worked out. He's like, I finally got to you. I finally got to you. Like, God, I was so rattled that he got to me because he, he, I was proud that he never got to me, but he was a guy that he could get you rattled. What did he say? I, I don't even remember. It's something like, you know, you can't make a play. That's why you're not playing or something, something like just minor, but, you know, just having that day. And you just need to take your frustrations out on someone. And, you know, when I played, if I was angry, I would just fight someone, right? You get your anger out. And um, when you're not playing, though, and you're sitting out for 
long stretches. Like there's a stretch with Chicago. I think Ryan Vandenbush and I sat out for 10 games straight, 10. And we were so mad that we would go and we didn't, we didn't, we were supposed to work out. We wouldn't work out. And we'd just go and sit in the sauna every, every uh, period for see how long we could last. I think one game we made like two periods. We were just dying. And no one, we didn't watch the game. <laughs> no one knew where we were. And, uh, but, you know, it's probably not the best story to tell kids, but I was so pissed after like game, like game 10 games. I mean, it's a whole month, a whole month almost of no games. I mean, what are we doing here at this point? Did Jason Strudwick ever go out with Sean Avery? I read the book. There were some legendary stories. Did you ever go out on the town with Aves? Yeah, no, he and I were running a little bit different circles at that time. You know, I think I just got married and uh, we had some parties and like he, he would come in and he'd bring in, you know, these models and, or whatever dates. I didn't, I didn't really know that I'm not a real social like kind of guy, but I remember one time we were in Boston. I think we both just got hurt the game before. And so we go over in Boston and uh, after practice, you know, we're both getting treated. He's like, Hey, do you want to come with me for the afternoon? I'm like, Oh God, like, there's a lot of things I'd rather do. He's like, I'm going to go to an art gallery. I'm like, all right, whatever. I guess we'll go. So I think I had a bad shoulder and he had a bad knee. So we have to practice, you know, all the guys are going for the pregame sleep. We get in this car and we drive out to this about 20 minutes out to this art gallery. And I got to say, it was a nice, pleasant conversation. And they were talking in this art gallery. He seemed to know what he was talking about. Um, you know, they were, they were looking at different things and it was pretty interesting. So he decides he's going to buy this painting and it's a big painting. Like it was bigger than you can just carry your arms. It was quite wide, probably four feet wide. Remember. So we ordered another cab. He and I get in this cab and we have to put this painting in front of us. You know, in Boston, there's that glass, not much room. So we put it there. We're in that cab for like two minutes. And Sean, was like, this guy's screwing us. He's going the wrong way. I'm like, what, what are you talking about? He's like, this, this guy's screwing us. We're going the wrong way. And I'm like, I don't even, what, I don't even know where I am. What are you talking about? He's like, I know this guy's screwing. So he starts banging on the glass and uh, we finally get on like a highway. We're driving on this highway. And he's like, why are you going the wrong way? And the guy's like, what are you talking about? So they start arguing. Now they're swearing at each other and Avery's calling all these things. The other guy's calling us. And he's like, that's it. You're out. So he pulls over on the side of this freeway and kicks us out. And I'm like, sorry, Ace. And he's like, both of you get out of here. I'm like, oh my God. So we both get out. We're standing on the side of the freeway with this painting we're trying to carry. So he, I'm like, okay, is what, like, what's, what are we going to do now? I was like, don't worry. I was calling another cab, but other cabs won't pick us up on the side of the highway. We're not allowed to. So like, we suggest you walk down to the next exit. So it was like a mile down the road. We had to walk down uh, with this, him with a bad knee, my other shoulder, trying to hold this painting up to this gas station. We finally call this cab comes, we get back, we go right back on the road. We're going. And he's like, I guess I'm paying like, you better fucking believe you're paying for it. Like I was so mad. And uh, so it ruined a perfectly good day. Went to the shitter because Abe thought he knew we were going to Boston, but what are, that, but that's Avery. Like he can go from zero to 10 and 10 to zero in two seconds. So you're, you're playing now. You mentioned Tom Rennie and uh, I want to get back. I do want to end with a Lundquist story, but you know, Tom Rennie was a unique coach study and this, and um, what did Rennie, cause he had, you had him in New York. And Edmonton. And I remember once, you know, you talked about how Rennie was the best coach for you. Why? Yeah. yeah. As a player, it's really nice when a, when a coach understands how you tip. And, um, you know, he, he and I, I mean, obviously he had coached my cousin before, uh, Scott Niedemeyer. Then, you know, I think, I think he wished I was a little bit more like him, but he got this version of, of me and uh, we, you know, we got to know each other a little bit and, and we'd have some really good chats and we were, it was really the first coach I was actually friends with. 
And I think that made a big difference. And I was older and more of a veteran, but he was a friend. Didn't always mean I liked what he did or the way that he handled me, but or the team, but we were friends, you know, and still are to this day. So, but he understood, you know, how to make me tick the best. And, um, you know, he really used me. When there's a night where it's going to be a physical game, I got a lot of ice time or, or more ice time or I played, right? Some nights when we played skilled teams, I remember going against Detroit, he'd be like, we don't need you tonight, big guy. I'm like, no problem. To be honest, I don't really want to play anyways. I don't want to chase these guys around. So, it, you know, he really understood. And I think he was very honest and direct with me. You know, some coaches would be, they'd be kind of coy or not really telling me what's going on. And I think as a player, all you want to know is just tell me. Just tell me what you think, what you're thinking. Um, just, just be honest. And I might not like it, but at least I'll know where I stand. You know, I, there were some nights where I hadn't played where I had a trainer tell me that I wasn't playing. I'm like, why is the trainer telling me, like, where's, where's the, the coach? Get some balls and walk out here and say, hey, you're not playing because you're not playing well or you're playing because we need a more physical or less physical player. Like, And Tom never, he was always the one to deliver any news that was good or bad. And I always really liked that about Tom. Yeah, Tom, I have a lot of time from uh, as, as, a, as a coach and as a player. Or as a, as isn't, a, it, isn't that the really what every coach in the NHL should be doing is trying to figure out exactly what makes each player tick. Like, I feel like there's, you know, more than a handful of coaches that are, I guess you could say still part of the old school in the sense that there isn't that much communication. You talk to players now and they're like, Oh, this guy doesn't say anything. I never hear from this guy, you know, that like you see some of the success that some other guys have a John Cooper or someone that gets to know everyone on his team and understands. It's almost like, it's not so much about strategy as it is about playing, I guess, almost like psychologists. Yeah, it's a good point, Frank. And I think it can be difficult because some people just aren't built to build relationships. You know, there are just some people that are unable to build relationships with more than maybe a small handful of people in life. So some coaches aren't able to go in there and, and have that, that moment talk with you and just see how you're doing. Like I had a coach who my parents came into the, the practice rink and he didn't even acknowledge them. And I'm like, are you kidding me? You know, the next practice, I, you know, you try to shoot a puck at him or whatever, right? Let him know who's, who's what, but it's, it's a, it's a crazy thing that I, I believe you have to at least understand what makes that person tick um, as a human and as a hockey player. And, and not everyone's the same. You know what? I, I responded well when people yell at me. Now that's not a popular thing now, but when people would challenge me, like Mark Crawford, you know, I'd be on the bench and, and uh, you know, maybe the game wasn't going the way he wanted. And he'd come down and like, man, that, that, that Jeff Rogers, that guy's strong. And I'm like, what, what did that guy just say? You know, and I'd kind of get, I'd get a little bit feisty. And he's like, who's going to let that Jeff Rogers run their show tonight? And I'm like, what are you talking about? And I start getting pissed off. And then sure enough, the next shift when Rogers is out there, old uncle Strutty is hitting ice. And then I just, I would attack him. Right. And, but he knew that I was very prideful and he, he, he understood how to use me. Right. And, and, but even, you know, we'd be playing and there'd be a guy who's being very physical, a D-man and be like, well, that Marchman, he can hit everybody. I'm like, what are you talking about? I can hit just like him. And so you, you kind of did that. Now the guys didn't like that. They didn't want to be challenged. I, I didn't mind it. But he understood also how to how to kind of manipulate me. But I don't think you understand every player how to maybe manipulate strong word, but how to get the best out of you. There are some guys that need hugs. There are there, you know, it's amazing. They come through all this hockey and they're gritty and they look like they're, you know, warriors, but they need hugs and they need love. They need time to be talked to and coddled. And, you know, some coaches can't give that out. Some coaches and some people aren't programmed for that. So, yeah, Frank, what you're talking about makes sense. But, you know, not everyone's programmed that way. Um, you look at Daryl Sutter in Calgary. I don't think he does it the same way as John Cooper. And that he finds a way to get, to get through to those players. And it's, 
it's a skill set. It is really, really tough to do. You mentioned Mark Crawford. Um, this year, uh, there's been seven coaching changes midseason. Uh, I think your first impression with Crawford was midseason. How is it when a coach comes in and, you know, you guys have been struggling that time in Vancouver, then you turned out to be a pretty good team. But when Crawford came in, how was it? How How is it bringing in a coach with no training camp? He just all of a sudden shows up in the room. Hey, guys, I'm your new head coach. How's that go? Yeah, he, you know, it's funny when it happened over the All-Star break and I, you know, I didn't make the All-Star team and I was at a bar in Edmonton, actually, for an all-star break. And I'm sitting there with a couple other guys, Marty McSorley and Sean Brown. And I look up on the ticker and all of a sudden it says, Mike Keenan fired, Mark Crawford hired. I'm like, okay, boys, that's it. Good night. I just laid my money down and I went home. I knew it was time. And I think I actually flew back to Vancouver early uh, to kind of get ready. Because the thing is, when a new coach comes in, you don't know where you fall, you know, where, how things are going to work out for you, right? There's there's a new coach. He has a new way of doing things. Everyone's fresh. And, and Mark Crawford didn't know any of us when he, when he joined that team. You know, luckily for me, he did, he did kind of like me. He played the hell out of me. Um, but for other guys, it wasn't like that. There, and, he, you know, coaches can make a quick decision saying, you know, Jason Strebick, he's not for our team. And he's not going to play you. He's not going to give you a chance. And you look like a bad player and you're out the door. Uh, or you're traded or released or whatever it is. So, you know, that, that first, I, always, I felt like that first month, you want to give the best impression. You're, you're on your best behavior, you're on time, you're working out, you're bringing the energy. And then after that, you know, people kind of find their level again because it's not the excitement of the new coach. And then I think that's when a coach, that transition period, I think that's when a coach can truly find out what he's got. You know, who, who's in, who's not in, um, who can he trust, who can he not trust uh, as they move forward. I think about it's about a month. So that's like what, like 10, 12 games. After that, you can kind of figure out who, who you want to have around. So you had Keenan, who was... Who was pretty emotional of a coach. Uh, some would say just border on crazy at times. And then Crawford, who was fiery. H- how was Crawford like, you know, with you and, and your team overall? Because, you know, Vancouver, you guys had a good, you had Bertuzzi, you had the Naz and Morrison line at that time. How was Crawford received in that room? And how do you think he was for your group? Well, he's coming from winning Stanley Cup. So, I mean, people, we were excited. Um, but he had the reputation of being a hard operator. And he was. I mean, it was his way or his way. There was no other choice. And, uh, you know, he and Todd Bertuzzi would have some battles sometimes. And then I was Bertuzzi's roommate on the road. So I, I would get in the middle of it. You know, uh, Bert would tell me what he was mad with Crawford with. And Crawford would call me to his office to talk about Bertuzzi and how I could help. And you're like, oh, my God. Like, you're between two very stubborn humans. They're both excellent at what they did. But two very stubborn guys. And you're trying to mediate between them. But, you know, he really knew the game or he really knows the game. And he was very fiery. Um, you know, you, you can, you can, you know, you, if you didn't have a good game, you definitely knew where he stood. Um, you know, he'd bring you in during intermissions and, and, and kind of give you a, a breakdown on why you didn't think you were playing well. Um, and again, I, I didn't really mind that too much. Uh, you know, after a while you do need a few hugs, um, but he did a lot of good things with that team, Mark Crawford. And he, you know, Mike Keenan was different. Mike Keenan wouldn't really talk to you. He would just, he had this one tactic that all, you know, there's a bunch of stalls in the dressing room and there's some that are better than others. And if he didn't think you had a good game, he would have the trainers move you to a bad spot in the dressing room. And then if you were playing well, you'd get to a cherry place in the dressing room. So you'd walk in, he never knew where your dressing room was, but, or, but you'd always know where you stood in his, you know, how you played based on where your, your, your seat was. How often was yours in the cherry spot? Mine, you know what? So I, think, I think Mike, like, I, I mean, I like Mike. I think he liked me. He, he appreciated the way I play. I didn't get moved very often. Um, but I remember Alexander McGillney one time, he got moved from 
the main restroom to like a side jetty. And uh, he couldn't, he was facing a wall. It was just a little wall. And he's like, hey guys, I'm over here. He, he didn't care. He was, he was You're not on the loading dock. Yeah, he was in the worst spot and he didn't care. But like, you know, Mike would come to practice and um, after a game and he'd have three um, headings. Uh, be like, one would be workout, skate, uh, workout. The other one would be, you know, workout, skate. Then the other one would be maybe just skate. And he would put your name where you had to be. So one morning I walked in and I, my name was just under skate. So I meant he thought I had a good game. I was so excited, but I didn't want to piss off the older guys. So I did the workout and the skate, but that's how we rolled. Like you knew exactly what he thought of you at any given moment um, based on how he slotted you in the dressing room and or how he had you practice. So he wasn't mad that you basically didn't listen to him and then you did the workout anyway. No, he, he loved, no, he didn't mind that. And I, it was hard. I mean, he, he loved the workout. He loved the sounds of working out. And he, but the opposite was true. When you won, we'd play East West three on three hockey. That was our practice. You know, it's hard. You're coming in as a rookie defenseman. You're, you're expecting to learn all these things from these guys. And, uh, you know, one of your first couple of practices is a three on three East West game. Like, are you kidding me? Like, I don't know. Is that going to help me stop Eric Lindros tomorrow? Like it doesn't, it was weird. Like he, he was really good with veteran teams. I think with younger teams, he, you know, I, I wanted it. I wanted to learn, you know, I needed, I needed to learn, not just want it. And uh, Mike, uh, um, he didn't bring it that time. Um, the other guy, you, like you played with a lot of big names, Strutty. Maybe you were the, the key. You mentioned Shanahan, like in New York, you got a lot of personalities, a lot of big guys, Jagger and Lundquist and Shanahan. Henrik Lundquist, I think safe to say, maybe the prettiest man who's ever played in the National Hockey League. Yeah. Like, you know, I think you might have had a crush on him for a few years when you played with him. But um, there's a story, and I don't remember. You talked about it once, and then somehow we didn't get into it. But Lundquist, something on a beach that you still yeah. have. What was, what's your story yeah. with Lundquist on the beach? Is there a bottle? So, no, so actually what happened was the bottle. So we, we, you know, he, he came in the year. So we both arrived in New York at the same time. And I had no idea who he was, Quite honestly, he probably no idea who I was. And we, you know, we expected Kevin Weeks to be our goalie. And then through training camp, this guy just starts taking off and he's making crazy saves. And next thing you know, his nickname's the King. I'm like, what the hell's going on? So he really improved the time and really asserted himself. But about, yeah, we, say, we, like, he third, said, we just said you, he, you got to the end of that training camp and everyone, he's like, I thought I was going to be the starter. He's like, there was no chance. Everyone knew at the end of training camp who the guy was. Oh yeah. He, he was crazy. He was so good. Like, he was, he was off the charts. Like he was so good. So anyways, we're like a third of the way through the season and he didn't talk a lot like during on game, like on game days before the game, he didn't like to talk. He kind of did his thing and whatever, and that's fine. So yeah, the TV timeout, I'm sitting on the bench, just sitting there, minding my own business. And I hear this, someone's like, just like, uh, like hitting something. And I'm looking around like, what the hell? And it's, it's Henry. He has his blocker and he's tapping the top of the bench. And he goes like this, he wants a drink and he won't talk to me. And I'm like, I just said, buddy, I said, what? And he's like, taps it again and points that he wants a wallet. I said, buddy, you don't talk to me like that. I'm not your butler. So um, the trainer's like, oh, so the trainer reaches down and grabs on the bottle and passes it up. So after the game, I just went over and said, thank you. You're a really good goalie. You're an amazing guy. But don't ever, ever treat me or any of your teammates like we're your, your waiter, your butler. And he goes, fair point. And that was it. And, and we moved on. And funny, Jim Ramsey, the trainer, we talked about later too. And he's like, you need to learn that. Like you, you don't just order people around, you know, and, and it wasn't because he thought he was good for him. It was just about him winning. Like he was just in the zone 
And so I didn't take it personally, but I was like, well, like, hold slow down here. Like, I'm not, I'm not your, I'm not your paper boy here. Now, Strutty, when when Hank retired, they they did, did this big interview and you know, they did tons of things on MSG. And they asked him, who was the worst dressed teammate he ever had? And in an instant, he throws out Jason Strudwick. How did yeah. like how did that go? Well, I think he was a little upset. I think his wife found me quite attractive, right? She, so I think he was always a little bit biased. I uh, didn't like that. Didn't like that comment. No, you know what? I I wasn't a big dresser. That guy spent so much time dressing. I'm like, oh my god, I I, I didn't get it. I, I still don't get it. I mean, I like t-shirts and jeans, show off the guns a little bit. But yeah, I don't I don't know why he uh, he he was he was he was a really good dresser. And he I've never there's two two guys I played with. I walked into a room where women just like are blown away. Henrik Lundqvist because he was so pretty, and 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 I'd say that in a nice way. He's very very put together, attractive, like model. And then Sheldon Surrey. Like I've never seen when those either one of those two guys walked into the room. It's like the music stopped, and the rest of us were like invisible. And I was lucky; I was already married by then, so I didn't have to fight with the well, not Leonard, you know, those guys to try to for competition for the ladies, but. They, those two, I've never seen a room stop when those two guys walk in. They are just two absolute good looking studs. Sheldon Surrey, I'm, I'm like kind of surprised. Should I be? Uh, no, this guy, I remember we went into a bar we had in Atlanta. It was out there. What is it? We went into a bar in Atlanta and there was like myself, Ethan Morrill, pretty like two decent looking guys, Dustin Penner. I don't know that he's that good looking. And Sheldon Surrey. And we walked in there and it was like, we, the three of us were not even there. there these, these, these women just came around and he was, Shelly wasn't even trying to, we were just sitting there. And all of a sudden they're just surrounding him. And uh, the rest like, I was married, but I'm like, you know, I am alive. I, where's, I've got a heartbeat here. You know, I've, I'm not the ugliest guy, but they were just, they, he, the guy was an absolute magnet, magnet and uh, good personality and funny, like, yeah, I don't know. Those two guys, man. Frank, I, I, I've never been in a bar with you. Maybe you'd be the third guy. But yeah, no, no, uh, definitely those not. Those two are definitely but, top two. Yeah. <laughs> uh, quickly, Struds, uh, of course, uh, you played defense. And I want to get your thoughts on, on NHL defensemen uh, right now. Like, you look at Hedman, who dominates how he plays. And then you have Kale McCarr. And he almost, they dominate in completely different fashions. Right. And, and they're very different size of players. Can you talk about the contrast of those two? Because I know those are two of your favorite defense. Yeah. Yeah, they are. I mean, Henry is my favorite defensive NHL. And I, I try to watch as many games just to watch him. And, you know, his, his raw size, but I think he way he moves like he he's there's very few demon his size. that can make a breakout pass to the winger and then jump past the winger to get a return pass. And now lead the rush. Like it's it's mind blowing that he does that. Um, you know the way he walks the line. Um, he isn't flashy. He's very efficient, and he's got a bomb. And the way he walks the line on the on the point is really impressive. It's it's for a big man. It's crazy. Kale McCarr is different. Kale McCarr is um, it's effortless. The way he skates and gets around, he, he's he's effortless, and he dominates with his footwork and his his um, his skating ability. I mean. The way he gets around the ice, like you think about Kirby Docker this year, the way he just, he was just kind of looking one way, then quickly turns the other way and tight, tight, turn back. That's skating. You know, he, he sets them up pretty well, but Kirby Doc couldn't, couldn't, um, couldn't predict that coming that someone could cut back that quick and, and go to the net and make that move that he did on the goal. You know, and, and then another guy really like those two are two of my favorites. And the third guy would be Adam Fox. 
And Adam Fox, he's unlike those two, but gets it done. Adam Fox for me is probably the best defenseman at using deception. And what I mean by that is by kind of looking one way or, or pointing his feet one way and it gets the player thinking he's going left. And then also he slides it back the other way or moves the other way. And so his skating, although it's good, I don't think it's on the level of Kale McCarr. He doesn't have the raw size and power of Hedman, but his deception, the way he moves around the ice, it's, it's elite. Like when I work with young defensemen or kids, I'm like, you want to watch and, and how to make the game easy. Watch Adam Fox. I don't think he sweats through a game. Um, a good skater, not an amazing skater, a good skater, but his deception, the way he uses the puck to, to lure people in different areas. My God, he is, he's, he's must watch uh, for me, but very subtle. He's not as sexy as Makar or, or Hedman, but he is very subtle. And I, I mean, not a surprise he won the, the Norris Trophy, but I don't know if even a lot of people know why he won it because the way he plays. Frank, you want to get to rapid fire? Yeah, let's do it. All right, Sruddy, uh, we play rapid fire here. The only rule is sure. you have to answer the question. Okay, sure. No problem. All right. Um, do you still have the suit from your NHL draft? No, I, I didn't go in the draft. I was in a birthday suit. I was sleeping when I got the call. So I guess I do have it still. <laughs> you, you have a reputation of being quite witty. Of all the teammates you played with, who gave you the best run in chirps? Oh, Sheldon Surrey. He and I would just sit down and just go at it. And uh, the young guys like Kyle Gano and Gagne, they loved it. they like, go give it to Shelly because they were scared of him. And I, I wasn't scared of him. But, you know, we just go in there and we just chirp each other. And we played against each other growing up. Like, he, he is really funny. Good looking and funny. It's quite a combo, actually. What did, he, what did you chirp him? Like, what were your go-to chirps on, on Surrey? Well, we played junior against each other. And he'd always talk about how our team was so good in Canada. So we were good. And he was, I think, in Tri-Cities. And I'd always bug him. Like, I, did you even play there? I don't remember. I, don't, I didn't play against the fourth line. So I don't know, like, if you were even out there. I mean, I guess I should remember you. But you had no out, no input on the outcome of the game. And he would get so mad. You don't remember me? I'm like, where were you drafted? Because he was drafted, like, five picks behind me. And, like, no one even thinks about it. Most of the people have left by then. Like, he would... And he would chirp me all the time. Like it was great. It was great battles. Opposing player that you despised. Uh, that's a good question. I don't know. I, I to be honest, I it was almost anyone who was really quick. So like Paul Korea, that guy. I remember one night I was assigned to guard that or to, to play against him, like a matchup. I'm like, are you crazy? Like I, the coach, I'm like, you've got to be crazy. And it, it ended within about three shifts. That guy was skating around me so quick. So. I didn't really have any hatred towards guys, but I did. I definitely, I hated the quick players, small and quick, like Marty St. Louis, Paul Korea, Timu Solani, although not small, fast. I hated those guys. They were just, it was brutal, brutal matchups. Um, you coach uh, a lot of uh, minor hockey teams. Uh, your son's team now, I think they're 11 years of age. So uh, they're, they're well-versed on the internet. Um, are kids watching your fights? And how, how do you talk to young kids when they see Coach Strudwick dropping the mitts? Well, the first time that I, I can always tell when someone's watched some of my videos of fighting, because they come the next day, they look at me like I'm a monster. Like, you know, they're just like, why would you do that? And I'm like, well, calm down. Like, it's a little different. You're not going to be doing that this year to another 10 or 11 year old. And I try to explain them how it works, but it's, it's, it's a little bit past them, right? They just see me, you know, thrashing up against another guy trying to <laughs> trying to kill the guy it's, it's it is a little bit scary for them but uh, i try to talk to them about the other side and about some of the other things i did so i'll direct them kindly to maybe a shootout goal i scored or 
maybe an overtime goal. They can check those out. Although there's fewer of those than there are the fights. Um, I was looking up your stats. You played 674 NHL games. 1,061 players have played that many games or more. There's only one player who has fewer goals than your 13. Do you know which defenseman has less goals mm-hmm. than you who played 674 plus NHL games? <sighs> At least there's somebody else. I'm not alone. That's good to know. Uh, I don't know. I'm guess It's not Ken Danico, is it? Uh, no, no, no. Kenny Danico, buddy. He was a goal scorer. He's, he's well ahead of you. Um, Rod. <laughs> he played like 1300 games. Like that's he, true. He definitely. True. He definitely got a few along the way by accident. <laughs> Rod Scuderi. Strutty. Really? Scuderi had less goals than me. That makes me feel pretty good. Actually. Yeah. He's he had a really eight, good defender. He had eight goals. Uh, Ken Baumgartner, Jeff Finley, and Jason Strudwick had 13. <sighs> that's quite a, quite a group. We should have a party. The three of us. That's uh, no, that's pretty impressive. Now, speaking of a party, some people might not know this. I don't even know if Frank knows. Um, you were in the, the bubblegum gang band for a brief time as a member of the New York Rangers. Yeah. The other two members of your gang were who and who was the best singer? Yeah, so it was uh, Ryan Hallwig, the little ball of hate, and then Mark Stahl, who's still playing. Uh, I don't think he's playing music anymore. But we just, we play that, this is when Rock Band came out and those two guys loved it. So I'd go and play with them every now and then, try to, you know, hang out as an older guy with the younger guys. And I wasn't very good, but then some other Rangers found out about it and they wanted to do a huge production. So we're going to do it at Ryan Hallwig's thing. And like, like we did plan it for whatever morning. We went out the night before, we were so hungover. We'd come walking in and there's like 20 people doing our makeup and all this stuff. Like, what the hell? So we're singing and it, it, those guys got shy. They didn't want to sing. So I sang, Hallwig did. Stahl didn't want to. He was always a little bit uh, quiet, but uh, we did. And it was fun. Like, it, and people still talk about that bubble gum gang. God, it was bad singing. Though. Bad. That's I was in the wrong key. Most of it. Do you have a t-shirt from your brief time as a musician? Do I have a teacher? T-shirt. Oh, t-shirt. No, no, we, we didn't. Uh, we, we went shirtless. We have a body like this. You want to show it off. If, uh, if Jason Strudwick is, is driving, what are the top three songs on his playlist? For sure, something by Frank Sinatra. Um, maybe uh, something by Ella Fitzgerald, maybe. And then I do like Molly Crew just to kick it up on the way to school with the kids. And uh, who of all of your uh, your fights in the NHL were you most nervous when the fight started? Well, it didn't happen in the NHL, but um, fighting George LaRock. You know, my whole team was in the minors. Everyone said I could beat him. Because he beat up everybody. They told me he had a glass jaw. I'm like, you're right. He does have a glass jaw. And that guy got a hold of me and he tossed me around like a rag doll. It was like a candle in the wind. And I, I couldn't get a hold of him. And he was, he absolutely wailed on me for probably, it felt like a minute until he finally, his hands got too sore and he put me down. And uh, I never fought him again. I think we both understood that he was tougher than me and I didn't want him to hurt his hands. So we just said, no more. We had a lot of good battles, but never fighting. I, I just, it was, it's an awful feeling when you're going into a fight and when at best outcome is a tie. Like that doesn't even make sense when you think about it. Like a, that's, that's a very, very bad decision. I made many of those, but that is probably my most regret. I just, God, why did I fight that guy? I'm glad I did, but it wasn't a good decision. And uh, we're, we're going to put this out there. 
Um, I know I know it got surpassed earlier this year by uh, Caleb Jones and uh, his partner in Chicago. But for the longest time, Strutty, there was the folklore about the shift. And uh, for people who don't know, Strutty had a shift in Detroit where the Red Wings, it was over. It was almost four minute shift all in the defensive zone. Your teammates couldn't get it out. The orders were a very bad team at that point, but you didn't get scored on. Um, is it true that current Oilers know you more about the shift than they do as right. an NHL player. Yeah. So one of the first times I met Connor McDavid was at this interaction. Is he came to skate with our uh, with this this hockey team, my son's team, um, and uh, you know I, I knew him a little bit to say hi. And he, he was just young. He comes over. He's like, "Hey, Strutty." I'm like, "Hey, Connor. Nice to meet you." And whatever. Nice to see you. He's like, "Hey, buddy. I gotta say, we watched the whole shift. We loved it. <laughs> like it was in like a minute of, of talking to him. I'm like, oh my god." And then, like, uh, Nugent Hopkins, same thing. This is a couple of years ago. I came to the dressing room. He's like, Strutty, the guys wanted to see the shift, so we watched it. We were dying. <laughs> like, are you kidding me? So the guys just thought it was hilarious. It was, it was pretty funny. And the, the shift, you know, a lot, of, a lot of different people played. Everyone did. I think the Zamboni driver had a shift, actually, in there as well. But, um, yeah, every now and then I'll put it on, and I'll just watch it. Like, oh, my God. It was a long time out there, a long time. Pat Quinn. I don't think he liked it. He didn't like the way it went off. And lastly, better than never times, being remembered at all. Yeah. How many times point. have you watched your one and only shootout goal? Oh, I, you know, what's funny. It, it comes in waves. The kids, <laughs> the kids will bring it up. They'll be like, Hey dad, remember when you scored that goal? Like, Oh, dad remembers. And I'll put it on. The funny thing is I still get nervous when I watch it. I still get nervous. The, the butterflies, like I, I, you know, I wasn't programmed to score goals. Yeah. I, I didn't, um, I just, I enjoyed it, but it wasn't, you know, some people are just like Ovechkin is just, he just wants to score, wants to score, wants to score. And I, like when I scored, I was happy, but I, I never thought, oh, I got to score tonight. But I get really nervous thinking about it that I, I just not going to go in. I'll wake up and like this, this time it didn't go in. So uh, yeah, it, it was, uh, I, you know, I haven't watched it for a while. Maybe I'll bring it on for the kids tonight. A little, little excitement for them on Friday night. Oh yeah. Well, there's two things for any of our listeners. You can Google uh, Strutty the Shift. Strutty shootout goal. And uh, I guess we could look up the uh, Strudwick George Lerac fight. I don't think I've seen that one. So I might have to uh, go check it out. Strutty, thanks for joining us on the DFO rundown. We appreciate it and continued success. Yeah, thanks, guys. Have a good day. There's Jason Strudwick. Pretty good storyteller, Frank. He'll, uh, he'll make one you of laugh a kind. Yeah, he played with a lot of characters over the years. It'll be an interesting weekend, Frank. Uh, we come up uh, Monday. will be exactly four weeks to the NHL trade deadline. We'll be having lots of talk about uh, lots of teams are on the run. And two teams that are red hot all of a sudden meeting up. The Minnesota Wild and the Edmonton Orders. Find out about that team. And the Minnesota Wild, Frank, we're going to touch on them next week. Is this the year Bill Guerin has to go for it? We'll talk about it Monday. Have a good weekend. Thanks for listening to the DFO Rundown with Saravali and Gregor. Keep it locked on dailyfaceoff.com and subscribe wherever you get your podcast from to never miss an episode. Delivered by DoorDash. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. All right, hockey fans, listen up because we've got something special coming your way this playoff season. It's called the Daily Faceoff Playoff Parlay Challenge. And let me tell you, it's going to add some serious spice to your playoff experience. Now, here's the deal. Every playoff game day, you're going to be faced with four questions. It's like your own personal playoff puzzle. And here's a sneak peek into some of those questions we'll be firing your way. First up, you got to pick the winning team. That sounds simple, right? But there's more. You got to decide if the total amount of goals in the game will be over or under a certain amount. And that's where the real strategy starts to kick in. Next up, you're picking who's going to find the back of the net first. And you're going to want to be careful because that's one that could be cooked early on in the game. And finally, you got to predict which period is going to be the highest scoring. Will it be a barn burner in the first, a shootout in the second, or a nail biter in the third? That's up to you to decide. Now let's talk about prizes because who doesn't love winning stuff? For the daily winners, you're getting hooked up with gift cards to treat yourself to some fresh nation gear, and you might even win a jersey from your favorite team. And for the big dogs, those who can win an entire round, it's straight, cold, hard cash. We're talking real dough for your hockey knowledge. So lace up those skates, stretch those thumbs, and get ready to show off your hockey IQ in the Daily Faceoff Playoff Parlay Challenge. Play now at games.dailyfaceoff.com and prove your puck prowess.